cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 7th, 2012. <laughs> I fear this edition of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God, to the Word of God. And sometimes the things being said about God are, <clears throat> well, they're just outrageous. <laughs> like in the sense of like, oh, no. <laughs> this can't, you really, you, this is the thing that just absolutely boggles the mind for me. How anybody takes somebody like Patricia King or or Todd Bentley seriously, that somehow these people are, connected to, in tune with what God the Holy Spirit is up to. You know, I, I think about uh, church history, and uh, when you look at the heresies that have come through church history, look at the Arian heresy, which was a Christological heresy, um, and you know, and how it forced the church to really dig deep into God's Word in order to really dig out what is revealed there regarding Jesus Christ. Well, I think we have a similar problem today. And one of the one of the problems that we have is that we're not facing a Christological heresy, even though the Arian heresy is alive and well in the Jehovah's Witnesses camp. But <clears throat> the uh, the heresy that we're facing is uh, if, well, is, I don't even know if this is even the right way of talking about it. But a, a pneumatological heresy, spirit. It's 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 a heresy regarding God, the Holy Spirit. And um, we, we've got an ecclesiastical uh, problem today. Uh, it's truly a, an ecclesiastical heresy in the form of the seeker-driven movement with vision-casting leaders basically commanding sheep to get on board with their vision. Otherwise, they're thrown under the bus. That's one problem. But uh, the other issue is is I really think since the emergence of the, of the Pentecostal movement, we're experiencing a pneumatological 
heresy, a heresy regarding God the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, what his work is. And um, <clears throat> when you look at what's going on in, you know, in like the XP media crowd, I mean, that that there are so many of these folks and that they're thriving and that they have so many followers and listeners and people who hang on their words and teaching. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And what what happens is with these folks is they basically proof text the scriptures in order to create the impression that God, the Holy, you know, Christianity is all about you having these ecstatic, mystical experiences, including getting drunk on the glory, uh, or you think of the laughing revival, and and you know, and then you know, Todd Bentley having his revival where he shakes violently. I mean, it looks like he's demon possessed, and you know, and then you know, people being hit and punched and knocked down by the Holy Spirit and all this kind of stuff. It's crazy stuff. And what happens is, is that what the people who are introduced to this, they're given biblical <clears throat> proof texts that somehow prove that this is what the Christian life is about. And then you know, slowly but surely they're weaned off of God's word in the Bible and have their focus firmly set on chasing after the latest winds of the Spirit and the latest experiences, whether it's soaking in the Spirit or things like that. But the, the Scripture doesn't teach any of this stuff. And, uh, in fact, a lot of what we're seeing here is aberrant. It comes from outside of Christianity. Some of it has its practices in pagan um, uh, demon worship for, for real. And uh, and what we're getting here is just absolute insanity. And when you try to confront people like this who are involved in these things with, hey, listen, this is not God the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is not the, the, the Holy Spirit that's revealed in Scripture. And you try to open up the Bible, they will... Basically, begin hurling bad names at the Bible at you. Oh, you just follow a paper pope. Oh, we don't listen. I don't need your Bible. I have the living Spirit. You know that's just the dead word. And oh my, it's it's absolutely frightening because what happens is is that at the end of the line in this is you know when this heresy fully matures and you think of it like a virus. You know you know when you're getting sick. Because, you know, you get a sore throat, you got a scratchy throat, your your nose begins to drip and, you know, and, and you, you can just tell you're not feeling so good. And you just know that this thing is going to progress. And the next thing you know, you know, you got full blown, you, you know, you're going through two boxes of Kleenexes a day, you know, you're on NyQuil and DayQuil, you know, you've got a vaporizer going, you got Vicks Vapor Rub going. And it's And you just feel horrible because when it really, you know, once it really blossoms, I mean, it just absolutely makes you miserable. So what happens is, is that some people are enticed into this. And then once this virus, this bad theology gets into full bloom, they're completely cut off from the word of God. That's the frightening thing about it. If, If you don't believe me, try talking to somebody who's caught up in this type of of, quote, religious experience, this type of, quote, Christianity. It's not Christianity. Try to reason that with them from the scriptures, and uh, somebody who's far down the line, they will literally throw you, throw the Bible back in your face. I don't need a Bible. I have the living, I have the living spirit. That's just the dead word, you know. And what so what happens is, is that this false theology, once it fully blooms, it cuts a person off from the word of God, which is what is necessary to draw them to repentance 
of their false theology and the and you know for the forgiveness of their sins to open their eyes absolutely terrifying terrifying um false teaching uh, with implications that it renders its vil- victim um at basically having at war with and having having true enmity towards the very thing that they need in order to open their eyes and to bring them to repentance and save them. Frightening stuff. So on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we'll be uh, doing another Patricia King update and talk about crazy. I've, oh, man. Uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, he has got another song. We, we, one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith is that we do audience enhancement work for uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse. Of course, you know, everybody who's listened to this program knows that he, uh, William Tapley is just a gifted Casio player. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, apparently he got some national coverage from the last song. And I mean national television coverage from the last song that we featured here at Fighting for the Faith. So he's written another one so we'll be uh, playing that for you today. Uh, like I said, we got a Patricia King update that I want to get to you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I may be talking about this Ohio church that has decided to start their own professional wrestling organization. <sighs> yeah, nothing says Jesus loves you than professional wrestling, where you know one guy is beating another guy to a pulp, all theatrically. You know that that I mean that. I yeah, and so I might be getting to that today, um, and then I, I got a story that starts off really bad, but ends—I I don't want to say well, but ends as best as it could. Now I heard about the story last week, and it made me so angry. I I didn't even want to respond to it on the air, but it's it's a story of a, of a church, a Baptist church in Mississippi that literally rejected a wedding because the couple was black just this kind this is the kind of story that just sends me it just makes me so angry that people are this backwards even to this day this is not you know this is not 1920s america this is not 1940s america you know this is 2012 the civil rights movement has done its thing and uh, we're supposed to be long past this. And when a church does this kind of thing, just absolutely sends me, it makes me furious because this is the kind of behavior that literally gives Jesus a black eye. And, you know, and it, it makes it, it, it reflects poorly on the church at large and on Jesus Christ and the Christian message. But that being said, there's been a the kind of a, t- a turn in the story that I'm going to report to you again. It's it's not that it ends well, but it ends as best as it could given the circumstances. So we'll be talking about that today. And then um, for our number two sermon review, we are going to be going to Barefoot Church. It's been a long time since we've done a Barefoot Church update. Uh, Pastor Clay Nesmith there, uh, he's been doing a sermon series called Legos to Legacies. And, oh man, how do I describe this one? Um, well, let's let's just put it this way. Okay, this sermon. Uh, if, if think of it, if you were t- at the Olympics, pretend that you were in London right now, and you had purchased tickets to watch, you know, the events at the gymnastics, uh, you know, uh, the portion of the Olympics, and so you had spent the day watching gymnastics, 
And let's just say that um, you were paying close attention to the competitors on the balance beam. Okay, now balance beam is, it's a tough apparatus. And nobody should be competing on the balance beam unless they know what they're doing, right? And say, and so let's pretend that one of the the, the uh, competitors was a gal who obviously didn't know how to do balance beam. I mean, she was making mistakes left and right, falling off. You know, just I mean, it her ineptitude was so bad that the um it was painful to watch uh that it's, it's, you know that's the metaphor here this sermon by pastor clay nesmith of a barefoot church um it's that bad i mean this is one of those sermons that shows that pastor nesmith has actually no biblical qualifications to be a pastor like none he has no skill whatsoever in handling God's word. And and as a result, he is clearly, clearly not even qualified to be a pastor. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but I'll be reviewing the biblical qualifications for a pastor that make it clear that the job, that the pastor must be one who rightly handles God's word. He must be skilled in sound doctrine and rightly handling the word of God and let's well, this sermon alone demonstrates that this guy has no business teaching anybody God's word publicly because he clearly doesn't know what he's doing. Now I know that's again it's, it sounds like really strong and in your face, but I think after listening to the sermon, you'll you'll get what I'm saying here. And the, here's the problem, <clears throat> Pastor Clay, he's not an isolated uh, person here. I, more and more and more and more of these so-called seeker-driven attractional churches have these types of guys as their lead pastors who claim to have received a vision from God. They've got their mission and their vision statements and all that kind of stuff. And then when they get up, you know, after after spending all this time marketing and attracting people to church, the message that they're receiving is anything but sound doctrine and biblical. I mean, it's just a flat-out train wreck. So, I mean, <clears throat> I, I will hold this up as a as just another example of what is clearly wrong in uh, in American Christianity. And this is something as a whole the church has got to repent of. And the way they repent of it is by literally defrocking and getting guys like this off the stage, out of the church, out of the pulpit, and replace them with men who will teach sound doctrine, rightly handle the word of truth, and preach the word in season and out of season. That is what needs to happen. Um, so, yeah, well, it, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we are doing a William Tapley update, well, then we've got to do this. Next. 
It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, long way to go just to get to that line. But anyway, here's the idea. Um, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times, is a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith. This is a man who claims to have cracked certain biblical eschatological codes, shares them on his YouTube channel, and he's getting more sophisticated. I noted this last time that... uh, uh, he's figured out how to use a green screen. Now, in the past, uh, if you if you look at his if you go to his uh, his YouTube channel, it's youtube.com forward slash Third Eagle Books. Uh, you'll you'll see that in the past he's actually filmed mu- many of his prof- prophetic. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't even use the word with him. But many of his videos claiming prophetic insights. In front of the the beautiful landscape in and around upstate New York, where he resides, and you know, including like a, you know the river, you know, riverbeds and streams and stuff like that, and the noise from the river has always been a little bit of a distraction. Well, he's figured out that he can actually just go to these scenic locations, set up his camera, film the footage, and then using green screen technology in his post production work, just put it behind him, and he so it looks like he's in front of this river, but he's not. But anyway, so he's, like I said, he's getting more, far more savvy, technologically savvy in his post-production work. Good on him. But um, one of the things he's really famous for is that he, the, the, this guy has got mad Casio chops. I mean, I mean, it, it just, it'll blow you away. And if, you, if you've never heard it, but he's recently um, taken that, that fine old tune. Remember, y'all familiar with that tune that goes... What would you do with a drunken sailor? What would you do with a drunken sailor? What would you do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? Well, he's um, saved the tune and written a, a song about Mitt Romney called Early in November. Yeah, here we go. What will he do 
with that Joker Biden? What will he do with that Joker Biden? Early in November. Drop him in the desert with a rusty canteen. Drop him in the desert with a rusty canteen. Drop him in the desert with a rusty canteen. Early in November. Way, hey, we need Mitt Romney. Way, hey, we need Mitt Romney. Way, hey, we need Mitt Romney. Early in November. What will he do with the Democrat Party? What will he do with the Democrat Party? What will he do with the Democrat Party? With a leaky rowboat, strand them on an island with a leaky rowboat, strand them on an island with a leaky rowboat, early in November. Excedrin, way, hey, I need Excedrin. Oh, man. <clears throat> I should let you all know that Mitt Romney has not approved this message. <sighs> Just so glad that I had the opportunity to pass that along to you. And if you were thinking that the program's going to get better from here, well, I... <clears throat> I hate to break it to you, but, well, um, maybe I should break it to you this way. Na, 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 na. Did you know that you have a garden in heaven? Yeah. Um, the apostle and prophet, Dennis Walker, just recently um, was in studio with Patricia King discussing this very topic. Yeah, here, listen in. Welcome to Everlasting Love. My name is Patricia King, and I'm glad that you've joined us for today's program. We have a special guest with us, Dennis Walker, who's the apostolic leader of Dunamis Ministries. And Dennis, it's wonderful to have you with us. And you're also the apostolic leader of Dunamis Ministries. Remember, they're the ones who can train you how to be a prophet. Yeah. Oh, boy. A channel host with XP Media, and That's we right. enjoy your input. You know, your word goes all over the world into the nations, and people enjoy you everywhere. And you're a, not only an apostle, but you're you're a prophet. Yeah, you're neither. Sorry, that is just absolutely pretentious. A seer. Mm-hmm. in particular so you get a lot of visions and mm-hmm. revelations and and we're going to talk about what yeah visions um from the point of view of you know jeremiah 23 he gets the kind of visions that god sent jeremiah to rebuke one of these encounters today because the lord has actually downloaded a special insight uh for you to give to the body and so uh, this is going to be an exciting message for... Oh, yeah. So this is a direct download from the Heavenly Kingdom just for you from the Apostle and Prophet, 
Dennis Walker. He's neither, by the way. Believers. And it's about a garden in heaven. Yeah. And so can you share a, a little bit about this encounter with us? Sure. Uh, I was in England, in Rochdale, England, and I was, after a meeting, staying with a pastor in his home, and I was down in his living room, sleeping on the hide of bed, and uh, <laughs> like normal, I, at the end of a busy day, I took time out to get into heaven, to see into third heaven, and just spend some time with the Lord. And I'm there, and the Lord came to me again in this vision, and then the Lord asked me a question I'd never heard before, and the question was, what if I've given every believer a garden in heaven a garden like the garden of eden and that they have to care for like adam and eve had to care right. for their garden oh man <clears throat> you'll notice um here something um let me point it to you let me use another metaphor here have y'all ever watched you know magicians on television or street musicians uh not ma magician musicians but magicians magicians like in magic Street magicians, right? Or magicians on television. If you know anything about so-called magic, it's not magic. They're illusions. And um, really good magicians are skilled at basically what's called misdirection. Misdirection is to get your attention at one area while they're doing something else in another area. And then because your attention is distracted or averted... You don't see what's going on, and it creates the illusion that you're that they're able to make things appear, disappear, or or whatever. Right? Okay. This is this is what I would consider to be demonic, satanic misdirection. Okay. And here's the idea: is is that when you pay attention to people like Patricia King, Todd Bentley, Dennis Walker, and Dunamis Ministries. You know, they're claiming to, I mean, this guy, wow, you've never heard anything like this before, have you? A guy who, before he goes to bed regularly, goes up into the third heaven. That would be the, you know, the, you know, the place where Christ is currently. And apparently he just has these ecstatic experiences, walks right into the third heaven and chats with God, talks with Christ and all this kind of thing. I've never heard anything like this. Right. And then he's got all this information thinking, wow, I got, I need to listen to this guy. I, I, I'd like to be able to do that. And so what happens is, is your attention, your focus is diverted. Diverted from what? Scripture. And when it's diverted away from Scripture, you're not hearing God's Word. And God's Word is all about Christ. So you're not hearing about the biblical Jesus anymore. All of a sudden, you're hearing about his so-called dreams and visions and chasing after these yourselves because you want to be able to do that. Of course, don't worry. They'll be happy to teach you how to do this for a price. Yeah, the, if, don't you think that if the, this is what the Bible want, you know, what God, the Holy, you know, God, the Heavenly Father, uh, the Holy Trinity wanted you to be doing, He would l clearly lay this out. This is, I want you to do this too, and here's how you do it. Don't you think it would be right there in Scripture in clear, unambiguous teaching? Well, it's not. Isn't that weird? So these guys have inside information. They have an inside track. They talk directly with God, and you're thinking, well, why are they so special and I'm not? You see, again, this is misdirection. You're, now your eyes are off of the Scripture, they're off of Christ, and they're on to the Apostle and Prophet. What so, if? I just want to backtrack a little while because you said, 
as normal at the end of a busy day, I just sure. went up into heaven. <laughs> now, for some of our viewers, that's going to be like, hello, what, what does he mean by that? Yeah. And um, so do believers have access, do all believers have access into the heavens? Because a lot of people think, you know, well, you know, I'm still on the earth. I haven't died. How can I be in heaven when I'm still sure. in earth? Can you explain those well, dynamics? Every believer has a handwritten invitation in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, to seek heaven and to find heaven. You know, Jesus right. said, whatever you seek, you'll find. And so the command is, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So we have an invitation, not just an invitation, but a command right. to seek third heaven experiences. Mm. So apparently, did you know this, that Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, commands you to seek third heaven experiences well you know let's take a look at our bibles and in maybe even some commentaries to figure out what's going on here by the way our three primary rules for sat for rightly understanding god's word they are context 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 and here's the idea is that false teachers are notorious for taking biblical passages out of context and making them, and what's what's called uh, turning them into a pretext. Basically, by taking a Bible verse out of context, you can make the Bible say anything. And then what happens is, is that when you take a whole bunch of biblical verses ripped out of context and string them together, you can create, you can basically make the Bible teach anything you want. Okay, and you're sitting there going, really, you can do that? Of course you can. Let me give you an example. Okay, um. I'm going to, there's a biblical verse that says G, uh, Judas, the, Judas went and hung himself. That's what the Bible, there's a Bible verse that says that Judas went and hung himself. And then, you know, there's another Bible verse that says, go thou and do likewise. So that means the Bible wants you to commit suicide. See? And you're going, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. And you go, right, exactly. The Bible does not teach, nor does God want you to commit suicide. The only way that you could create the impression that that's the case is by taking two completely different passages and sticking them together out of context. That's what he just did, okay? That's what he just did. He referenced Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then mentioned the fact that Jesus says, whatever you you know ask for in my name, seek, and you will find it, right? So two verses that are not connected, ripped out of context, all of a sudden equals, there's an invitation in Scripture for you to have third level of heaven experiences. You're to seek after them. In fact, it's not just a, an invitation. It's a command. Hog wash, okay? Hog wash. The text doesn't say anything of the sort. Colossians chapter 2 verses verse 16 is where we're going to go to and we're going to look at the immediate context. We're going to add some verses before and some verses after using a good translation. This is pro, this is vital that you do this. Okay? If you're using the message paraphrase or if you're using uh, the 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 living paraphrase or the new uh, you knock that stuff off. You you need a you need a real bible, okay? I recommend personally the ESV. It's, you know, having worked in the biblical languages, the original languages, uh, Greek and Hebrew, for almost two decades now. Uh, the thing I like about the ESV is that it's a great translation that really gets the gist of what's going on in the biblical languages. That doesn't mean it's not without problems. It, it, it Every translation does have strengths and weaknesses. It's a fine, fine translation, and it's way stronger than the NIV. 
Um, you know, and you know, so in fact, I don't, I, I don't teach from the NIV anymore. I taught for, from it for a long time. Can't stand it because I'm always correcting it. And the TNIV, not worth the paper it's printed on. And I don't really, I have no clue what's going on with the the newest edition of the NIV that they've recently published. Not interested in that I, uh, either. You know, get a good translation, and I strongly recommend the ESV. Okay, now let's take a look at this. Colossians chapter two. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drinking with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. By the way, there was a heresy that the Apostle Paul was addressing uh, that was running rampant in the church in Colossae. Anyway, that was a a Judaizing uh, heresy of sorts, too. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualifying you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions. Uh Uh-oh. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 warns me about guys like Dennis Walker and gals like Patricia King. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. This is the point I was making at the top of this at the top of this segment, that these folks are taking our eyes off of Christ. So Paul's making the same warning here that these these people going on and on about their so-called visions are actually making it so you're not holding fast to Christ. That That's who the head is that's mentioned there. Now, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you not do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and human teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died in your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no, not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So you'll see that here the idea, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or going back to the verse that he uh, ripped out of context, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
Well, in the context of what Paul is saying here, he's not saying seek ecstatic experiences where you walk into the third heaven. That's not what this says at all. Instead, what this is saying is is that set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, a good commentary um, would clear this up. Now, this isn't the best commentary, but just a simple commentary like the NIV commentary says to set the heart literally uh, things that are above is to desire and strive for heavenly things. It is to see to it that one's interests are constantly centered in Christ and that one's attitudes, ambitions, and whole outlook on life are modeled, molded by Christ's relationship to the believer and that one's allegiance to him takes precedence over all earthly allegiances. That then explains why he then gives a negative thing and a positive thing. The first is put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, those things, and instead put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. That's what's being referred to here. Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 is not saying you have an invitation to have ecstatic experiences. In fact, as I've already pointed out, what these two are doing, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself, warns us about folks like Patricia King and Dennis uh, Walker. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions. We'll talk about detail of visions. Here's some more of it. Okay, so you're having one of these raptures? Yeah, <laughs> or one yeah of these, right. Yeah, and, and the Lord began to talk to me about a garden. And he said, what if I've given a garden to every believer? And I'm thinking, wow, cool. And he said, would you like to see your garden? And, you know, well, yeah, of course. And so all of a sudden, I'm just absolutely transported into this garden, lush green garden with a wall around it, huge place, not just a small little walled garden, but a, like an estate with a big wall around wow. it. And then the Lord said, now, the problem is this is your garden and you need to care for it like Adam and Eve cared for their garden. And he began to show me things that were out of order, things that needed to be ordered and plants that were there that shouldn't have been there and, you know, things that needed to happen. He showed me my walls. So there's weeds in heaven? We, we walked around some of the part of the walls of my garden and there were gaps in the walls. And So there's a broken down wall in heaven? doesn't make any sense parts where there were breaches in the walls now we know that in heaven everything's perfect yeah so there's no breaches in the walls in heaven but he was showing you was it a parallel of your life in the earth or of your your realm of fruitfulness in the earth what what was he, he's showing you as far as the brokenness and the things that weren't quite right in the weeds and stuff yeah. like that well you know i i assumed this was in third heaven but Later, I think it must have been like three or four weeks later after I've had all these experiences and now been working in my garden and doing some things to change things. And then the Lord one day asked me, well, where is your garden exactly? And I'm thinking, well, you said heaven. And he said, but where can... And then he began to ask me, can there be this kind of disorder in third heaven? And it dawned on me, no, there can't be. And he said, your garden is in second heaven. Wow. Now, again, for our viewers, that might be a... Oh, right. Yeah, you believe this. I have a bridge I like to sell you in Brooklyn. I'll give it to you for cheap. Trust me, I'll make a good deal for you. Strange terminology. And we know that second heaven is not a scriptural term, but 
third heaven is. That's right. <laughs> and then we can deduce from that that there's a first and a second. Exactly. There must be a first and a, and a second. So yeah. a lot of a lot of theologians believe, especially warfare theologians, believe that the second heaven is a place where Satan's hierarchy is set up, um, which there is some yeah. of his hierarchy there because obviously he's not in the third heaven. He got booted out of God's place right. of abode. But that second heaven realm is what believers are to own, right? right? So it's a place where we're to fill it with. If believers are supposed to own the realm of the second heaven, don't you think the Bible would mention it? You just said that it's nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Oh, man, this is just delusional. Knowledge of the glory of God. Yeah. There's angels in that realm as well, right. God's angels. Yeah. And, um, and, and there's things to overcome and things to put into order. Yeah. And in, a, in, in the book of Ephesians, it actually is a letter to believers to show us how to rule and reign in those realms. That's right. Well, you know, the, the Word of God says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities yeah. and powers and rulers of darkness in heavenly, heavenly places. places. I'll guarantee you those places are not in third heaven. Right. That's Really? Right. Wow. What a sharp mind you've got. Right. And so what I began to understand was where I had learned that the enemy abides, and, you know, I'd even heard people say, never, don't go there. I know. And, I've heard uh, that too. That's ridiculous. That isn't is it? ridiculous because it doesn't belong to him. It doesn't belong. I said, to oh, the that's enemy. a demonic realm. But I thought, yeah. well, you know, the earthly realm is full of demons too. But that's does right. that keep believers from operating in the earthly of realm? Or we're to conquer it. Yeah, that's right. Light into the darkness. And I actually believe. Yeah, <laughs> in their case, darkness being beamed straight into darkness. That's that the tops of the mountains of government and all these Come different on. places. New Apostolic Reformation talk here. This is our in Come second on. heaven. Yeah. And that we're actually called to possess the gates of the enemy. Yeah. And so the Lord began to show me, by the way, when I began to look at how much work my garden needed, I began to get a little tired just thinking about <laughs> it. But then the Lord spoke to me and said, you don't work in this garden by the sweat of your brow. Right. He said that Adam and Eve did not work by they the sweat of their brow. No. There were no hose and rakes in the garden. Yeah. And he, he said that they were. Yeah, man. There was no hose and rakes in the gardens. Yeah, there were no trowels either and hoses and by the lawnmowers and weed whackers. Creative word. Yeah. And he said, now begin to speak over your walls and speak over your garden for wow. things to change. And I began to do that. And my garden began to be transformed as I would prophesy over my garden wow. and speak over my garden. And then. I began to change. My, I, you know, this was an experience that I had on a trip away from home. I got back home and my wife recognized I'd had some experience that I hadn't told her. And she said, you're different. What's happened to you? And well, he'd been working in his garden in the second heaven. And so I began to tell her about my garden experience. And she began to go to her garden and see things. And then I, I began to understand that God has a plan for the retaking of second heaven that starts with us caring for what really belongs to us. Come on. And that that actually creates the character necessary for us to be able to carry l even later more authority. Wow. <laughs> speechless. Absolutely speechless. Because none of this is taught in scripture. And, well, let me read again what the apostle Paul says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. And by the way, Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not 
holding fast to the head, from which the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Yeah, exactly. These people have got you off of topic, off of focus. You're no longer holding fast to Christ. You're chasing after dreams and visions. And the Apostle Paul, writing under the Holy Spirit, says, don't listen to these people who go on in detail about their so-called visions. Did he really have a vision from God? Not at all. God the Holy Spirit didn't tell him any of this stuff. This is all nonsense designed to make you want to have these experiences too and to get your eyes off of Christ and get you out of his word and chasing after the latest word from these so-called apostles and prophets. But they're not apostles and prophets sent from God the Holy Spirit or sent from Christ or sent from the Father. No, these are people who show up on their own authority and they teach basically nonsense, empty words, and doctrines of demons. Be warned, folks. This is just crazy stuff, and it's dangerous as it gets, because at the end of it, it takes your eyes off of Christ long enough so that Satan can drag you and your carcass into the lake of fire with him. That's what that is all about. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as 
Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. All right, we're back. Warning, people who come to you and say that they're prophets and apostles and go on and on about their dreams and visions and trips to the third heaven, they weren't sent by God the Holy Spirit. The devil sent them. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support, those of you who are supporting us. And also, just a reminder, the uh, the tail end of our uh, summer bake sale is now in progress. We're uh, rapidly drawing to a close with our uh, with the second half of our bake sale. If you don't already have your Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, get your uh, bake sale item for the year. You know, this is what we do for the summer to get through the lean, mean summer months. Okay, moving along. Okay, from the um, CNN website, uh, Black Wedding Rejected at White Church is the headline. Yeah, I saw this for the first time last week, and I was just like 
hot red with anger. I was so angry at this. But it ends probably as best as it could end. I'll explain here in a second. By We're going to first play the, uh, the CNN coverage regarding the story. Here we go. They had set the date, printed up, and mailed out all the invitations, but the day before wedding bells were to ring for Charles and Teandria, they say they got some bad news from the pastor. Congregation had decided that no black couple could be married at their church, and that if, they, if he went on to have to marry us, then they would vote him out and he would be put out of the church. The Wilsons were trying to get married at the predominantly white First Baptist Church of Crystal Springs, a church they attend regularly but are not members of. We couldn't have the wedding at the church. He had people in the sanctuary that was pitching a fit about us being a black couple. I mean, I didn't like it at all because I wasn't brought up to be racist. I, I was brought up in the church all my life to love and care for everybody. Church pastor Dr. Stan Weatherford says he was taken by surprise by what he calls a small minority against the black marriage at the church. This was, had, not, had never been done here before, so it was setting a new precedence. And there were those who reacted to that because of that. Weatherford went on and performed the wedding at a nearby church. But I didn't want to to have a controversy within the church, and I certainly didn't want a controversy to affect the wedding of Charles and Teandria. I wanted to make sure that their wedding day was a special day. After months of planning, the newlyweds say they had no choice but to go through with the wedding at the new location, but they still can't understand why a church would ban their wedding because of race. I blame First Baptist Church and Crystal Springs. I blame those members who knew and called themselves being Christians and didn't stand up. Church officials say they welcome any race into their congregation. They now plan to hold internal meetings on how to move forward should this situation reoccur. I was prepared to just go ahead and do the wedding here. Just like it was planned and just like we had agreed to, I was just looking for an opportunity, an option to, to be able to address a need within our congregation and at the same time minister to them. In Crystal Springs, David Kenny, WLBT News. Okay, so the church apparently had their meetings. They got a black eye on this, and they should have. They, I mean, the, the rebukes that they've received from all quarters of the Christian church have been swift, strong, and like I said, the story ends not on a good note. That's not like the right way of saying it, but the best possible outcome. From the Christian Post, um, this was from yesterday, and a story written by Audrey Barrick. Headline reads, Mississippi Church asks for forgiveness for barring black wedding. Amid public outcry over its refusal to wed a black couple, First Baptist Church of Crystal Springs, Mississippi, issued an apology Sunday, expressing regret and admitting to being wrong. Quote, as a church, we express our apology to Tiandra and Charles Wilson for the hurt that was brought to them in the hours preceding their wedding and beyond, the church stated. We are seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with our Lord Jesus Christ. Tiandra and Charles, family and friends of the Hendersons and Wilsons, our church family, our community, for actions and attitudes that have, been, that have recently occurred. Tiandra and Charles Wilson had planned to marry at First Baptist, a predominantly white church, in July. But at the last minute, the couple was told they had would have to move the wedding to a different church. 
First Baptist pastor Stan Weatherford said a small minority in his church opposed the wedding, and thus to avoid conflict, he decided to perform the wedding at a nearby church. The Wilsons would have been the first black couple to marry at the 150-year-old church. The move was met by protest by the public as word spread. Russell D. Moore, the dean of school in, of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, said he cringed when he heard about the church's refusal to marry the African-American couple. First Baptist, he said, should seek repentance and reconciliation. That's right. Mississippi Christians know perhaps better than the rest of the country just how satanic and violent racial supremacy can be, Moore stated. We have danced with the devil, and we ought to recognize him when we when he returns. But that's precisely why Mississippians ought to be the ones to lead the way in showing the church what biblical reconciliation and revival looks like. A church that prized carnal divisions over color of skin or cultural background is a church that isn't finding its identity outside of the flesh and in a Jewish Messiah seated at the right hand of God. The Southern Baptist emphasized the church is made up of people who have lost everything. We are dead. We prize nothing about what we used to take such pride in and we instead see ourselves as executed and raised in Christ. John Piper, an influential Reformed theologian who has repented of his past racism, agreed with Moore, tweeting, The gospel lost. Rise up, FBC. In its statement Sunday, First Baptist Church of Crystal Springs recognized that it is made up of sinful, redeemed, but flawed saints who intentionally at times chose not to follow the Lord's will. Expressing regret for moving the wedding, the church added, We, the church, realize the Hendersons and the Wilsons should never have been asked to relocate the wedding. This wrong decision resulted in hurt and sadness for everyone. Both the pastor and those involved in the wedding location being changed have expressed their regrets and sorrow for their actions. The church also affirmed that it should be open to all people. So there's the idea. What does that mean? Well, let me point this out to you this way. This is the best possible solution when a grievous sin has taken place. They've repented, confessed their sins, and asked for forgiveness. Do you think Christ forgives them? Yeah, I think he does. I think Christ bled and died even for these sins that they've committed. This is what it looks like to sin, to be confronted with your sin, in a rebuke, strong, sharp, and public, and to repent and to be forgiven. This is the one thing I like about this story, as much as I don't like this story, is that it shows the full cycle. It shows the full cycle. And we need to see this, because this is the cycle that each and every one of us has to walk through individually with our own sins, and sometimes collectively when we sin in, in a group, right? We do something that is terribly, terribly sinful and wrong, grievously sinful. We're rebuked for it. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. And then we're forgiven. The only thing missing in this story is absolution. The only thing missing is, an, is absolution. And that's what needs to be heard at this point. You know, I can't pronounce absolution here, but I can say 
definitively that what has happened here, Christ has bled and died for it, and that he does forgive them. I can announce generally the forgiveness of their sins. And I pray that the folks there at this First Baptist Church of Crystal Springs in Mississippi, that their sin, their repentance, asking for forgiveness, and receiving of forgiveness would cause them to again hear the gospel for them collectively, and that the gospel would be front and center of everything that goes on in their church as it should be. Because that's ultimately this story is your story and mine. Not that we've committed the sin of racism like they have, but we sin daily and sin much in different and in similar ways. And daily we need to be forgiven of our sins. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Daily we ask God for forgiveness and oftentimes we have to ask others for forgiveness as well. This is the full cycle. Sin, rebuke, repentance, sorrow, forgiveness, and absolution. It's all there, except for the absolution part, but you get what I'm saying. So that's why I wanted to share the story with you, because as terrible as the story is, it ends as best as it can with a group of people confessing their sins and asking to be forgiven. And they should be and ought to be forgiven. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. On the other side of the break, sermon review. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a booth across the USA, then everybody'd be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, where Archie Sandals do. A bushy, bushy blonde hair, serving USA. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com 
forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater at the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. You'll laugh. You'll scream. And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. It's been a while since we've done a Barefoot Church Sermon Review. You may remember them from the Primp My Mom Sermon with the small R that made it look like the sermon was entitled Pimp My Mom. Yeah, go back in the archives. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's, oh man, sermon, I don't even know if you can call it that, uh, comes to us via Barefoot Church, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Clay... Nesmith presiding. Now, he is a, well, it says that Clay attended Columbia Biblical Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. It doesn't say that he graduated. My question is, did he pass Hermeneutics 101, Exegesis 102? Does he know how to read Greek and Hebrew? Does he understand how to properly handle God's Word? Because I think this sermon by itself proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is not qualified biblically to be a pastor. Now, I know that's a strong claim, and I don't, I don't normally make it that forcefully here at Fighting for the Faith, but this sermon really is that bad. The name of it is Legos to Legacies. Legos to Legacies. It's, it's a sermon series he's been working his way through, and this is week two in the series. And, wow. I mean... This thing goes wrong so many different ways. I mean, like I said, it you know, in the an hour number one, it's like watching a gymnast on the high beam, or you know, that balance beam, who clearly has no skill at being a gymnast. It's really that bad. Let me uh, kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Clay Nesmith and um, his sermon, Legos to Legacies. Here we go. How you guys doing this weekend? Man. 
It is an honor to see you at one of our four uh, campuses, man, and we are glad that you chose. He's a multi-site. Unbelievable. Chose to worship with us here at our Main Street campus this weekend. We've got a Whiteville campus, an online campus, and also a Lakeside campus, and we want to welcome all of those campuses also uh, this weekend. Now, we're in this series that we have titled Legos to Legacies. It's all about actually leaving legacies and building uh, leaders. And so we're going to continue. <laughs> okay, now here's a question I have for you. This ought to be see, seem pretty simple, but is do you, just based on that little introduction, do you think that this sermon is Christocentric, that would mean centered on Christ, or is it anthropocentric, basically coming from the Greek word anthropos, which means man, man-centered? Is it Christocentric or is it anthropocentric? Well, if you think it's Christocentric, you pick the wrong answer. It's actually anthropocentric, which is really, really bad, really wrong, because the Bible isn't about you. It's not about men. It's about Christ. We're in trouble already. And you that uh, this weekend, and, and God's going to do amazing, amazing things in our uh, life. Now, you know, I've discovered that if we want to leave a legacy and build great leaders in life, the first thing we've got to do is actually we've got to help others. Do, do you think that Christianity is really about building a legacy and, and creating leaders in life? What on earth does this have to do with sound biblical doctrine? Others see their God uh, potential, and we've got to see the potential in others. And so, you know, I think that's a really important concept for us to understand. Yeah, human potential, not a biblical concept. Man, because a lot of times we don't see the potential, so we choose to actually, actually do nothing. Now, you know, I started thinking about life this week, and life is a lot like this big pile of uh, Legos. A lot of times when we look at the world, we just see a bunch of uh, people. We see a big mess, don't we? I mean, we just think, you know, our world is just a, a big old a mess. I mean, there's different shapes, different sizes, uh, different colors, and all of these people. But how does this uh, turn into anything great in life? And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Because when God looks at life and He looks at people, He doesn't He doesn't necessarily see that mess that we see. He wants to do incredible things through your life and through. Of my life. Now, it's huge for us to begin with seeing the potential. No, you know, a sermon is really supposed to begin with the Word of God. It's weird. I mean, so you're, you're here, you're telling us without any word from God, without any biblical text, that we really need to learn how to see others' potential. Hmm. Okay. Let me remind you, biblically, of what your job is, Pastor. Okay. Second Timothy chapter 2. Now, by the way, if you would like to review for yourself, what God the Holy Spirit has revealed regarding the qualifications of those who are in the pastoral office, okay? You would go to several places, but particularly what we call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. Those are called the pastoral epistles because in those letters, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul lays out the qualifications for those who would be elders and overseers or pastors and deacons within the biblical church, okay? With, so here's the idea. Writing to young pastor Timothy, God the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, instructs Timothy this way. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles or rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble, irreverent babble, stuff that ought not to be taught in church. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, Philaetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So here here we got an idea from God the Holy Spirit, that a pastor, because this is written to a pastor, should study and show himself approved, who not to be ashamed, who can rightly handle the word of truth, and avoid irreverent babble that leads to more and more ungodliness and spreads like gangrene. So here, well, if we don't want irreverent babble, what do we need? What do we need in in church? Okay, same book, chapter three. Understand this: that in the last days there will come difficult times, for people will be lovers of self. Now, the people outside of the church, this is a, a perennial problem with them because they're dead in trespasses and sins. But Paul here is warning that in the last times there will be people who will be lovers of themselves in the church that's the difference okay they will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving the good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having the appearance of godliness really <laughs> i mean that's the amazing thing okay that is like the key piece of this Listen to the list. They're they're narcissistic, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, swollen with conceit, brutal, not loving the good, having an appearance of godliness. With all of that, they still have some kind of an appearance of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Avoid such people. Okay, These are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to to arrive at, the, at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupt in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Okay, So here's the idea, is that you know in the last days, people, I mean, listen to the list there, okay? But what do we need? What what should be taught in church? Okay, well, here's what Paul then continues to say, verse 16 of chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and Scripture is profitable for teaching, correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, with that in mind, Here's the next question. The first question I ask is, is the sermon going to be Christocentric or anthropocentric? 
It's clearly anthropocentric, which is bad. Next question. Is this the type of sermon that preaches the word? Or is this a basically irreverent babble of a man who isn't preaching the word that is leading people astray and scratching itching ears? And worse, leading them, causing them to turn away from listening to the truth and having people wander off into myths. Do you think the Bible, do you think the New Testament was really written so that you can learn principles for leaving a legacy and, um, and for tra- training up leaders who will change the world? Not at all. The Bible is about Christ and what he has done, calling us to repent and to be forgiven and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. But see, here already we got a problem because he's not starting off with a biblical text. He's starting off with things that he's learned that he thinks are important. Well, I'm sorry, but the things you've learned in life that you think are important, they may be, they may be really neat, nifty things that you've learned. But that's not what's to be taught in Christ's church. The word of Christ is to be taught, not your own opinions or ideas or whatever you think is cool and nifty. And so, you know, these Legos are actually a big mess, but I see great, great potential. And today I'm going to talk about actually how to use our leadership influence to train up tenacious leaders. But in order to do that, I've got to have a teaching table. And so this is a big mess, but what I've done is I've invited some folks to come up. So if you folks will come on up, uh, they're going to actually uh, work together and they're going to build me a teaching table right here so I can uh, put my journal on that and my stuff on that so we can learn about uh, actually training tenacious leaders this this weekend. Now again, we sometimes we see a big mess when we look at life, kind of like the Legos. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a big mess in your living room and people are getting ready to come over and you're like, man, look at this mess. Somebody clean up this mess. And that's what a lot of times we do whenever we look at people in life. We think, what a big mess. You know what? Life is bigger than one. Life has different shapes. Life has different flavors. Life has a different, different color. But a lot of times we don't see the potential in those people. We just see the mess. We don't see them working together and creating something great. And so we really miss so much in a life. You see, God doesn't see a mess. He sees a masterpiece. You see, a lot of times we see a disaster. Really? Do you have a Bible verse that says that God sees a masterpiece? Maybe God sees a mess because people are born dead in trespasses and sins and in need of forgiveness of sins. If you want to, if you really want to see what a mess your sin is, look at the bloody, beaten, scourged mess that Jesus' body was after being bludgeoned and crucified for your sins. Seems like a mess to me. You see what I'm saying here? I mean, it's nice that you have this little slogan that God doesn't see a mess, he sees a masterpiece. I didn't see a biblical text to back that up. You're just making assertions about God without any biblical warrant for saying what you're saying. ...in the living room. I mean, again, people were coming over. Man, kids, this place is a disaster. Legos everywhere, I'm going to break my leg, right? I mean, like, clean up this disaster. You see, God doesn't see a disaster. God sees a dynasty when he looks down on... Really? Um, do you have a biblical verse that says that? One would do, in context, that clearly says that. 
I don't claim to be a biblical scholar, but I've read enough of my Bible in both the, well, in, in English, Greek, and in Hebrew to say that I don't think that any passage says that. Not one. Of planet Earth. God doesn't see a bunch of individuals, though we see a bunch of individual pieces. God sees something interwoven, and God sees something interacting to actually do something uh, great. And yeah, where did God reveal this to you? Did you get this via direct download from Patricia King? I'm curious. Where, again, does it talk about how God sees everything is interwoven? I'm curious. Life. God doesn't see a mess. He sees a masterpiece. God doesn't see a disaster. He sees a dynasty when he looks at you and when he looks at me. God. Yeah, sounds like you're just puffing up my ego there. Yeah, in the last days, the people will be lovers of themselves. Wander off into myths. Yeah, boy, wow. God, when God looks at me, he sees a dynasty and a masterpiece. Well, of course, I'm so important, you know. God doesn't just see a bunch of individuals like we do in our culture. I mean, we're kind of an individual culture, right? Everybody, every man, every woman pulls up their, their boots by their own straps, right? And we're individuals. But see, the truth of the matter is God sees something interwoven. And when we get this picture and we begin to work together with other people, we can begin to discover that God potential, that God potential in ourself. Really? So, w w again, this doctrine of the God potential within ourselves where is that clearly taught in the Bible again? I'm not familiar with those passages at all. And so that's what we're going to kind of talk about, how to help others discover that God potential and also, you know, what, how for us to live out that God potential in our life. They're doing an incredible job, right? They got a few more pieces. Give them a hand clap for helping me out uh, today. You guys go ahead and finish that off. Make sure you've got a great place for me to lay my journal on, good and flat. Incredible. One more piece by your foot. All right. That's awesome. Give them another hand clap today. Thank you guys so much for helping me out uh, today. Now, huge, huge uh, potential. As they work together, use the different shapes, and actually, let me put one here use the the different pieces in order to build this incredible incredible uh, masterpiece you know big little short or tall god actually has use for us us all and again yeah, now even though that rhymed yeah again um not a biblical text we have to see that potential that's actually where legacies actually begin is whenever we actually see the potential. I wrote it down in my journal this way. Seeing potential is where legacies start. Yeah, and great that you wrote, it's fine that you wrote this down in your journal. Where does this teaching come from in the Bible? I, yeah, I don't know how to break it to you, but your journal isn't scripture. So can you open up the Bible and show me this God potential doctrine? Okay, please, I'd really like to see this from the scripture in context, clearly taught. Training the potential is where the world is changed. You may want to write that down this weekend. See, Why on earth would I want to write down something you wrote in your journal as if it fell from heaven? That's ridiculous. Your job is to preach the word of God. You're supposed to say gegrapte, that it is written. You're not supposed to say it is written in my journal. 
is it's gegrapte that's it, it's written in scripture being the potential is where legacies start but training that potential that you see is actually where the world is changed you see a lot of people can see potential but very few people uh, know how to train that potential in order to change change the world and you see what we're going to learn this week yeah wow yeah, so few people know how to train that potential to change the world so barefoot church is going to be the place that learns how to see the god potential and train the potential to change the world where is this taught in the bible again again is that actually training the potential actually causes a great movement in the world and god does incredible incredible uh, uh, things you do know that the bible there's a commandment that says you will not take the name of the lord your god in vain you're breaking that commandment right now by putting words into god's mouth that he has never spoken and so we're going to learn how to actually again train tenacious leaders i wrote it down this way tenacious go nacious leaders go nacious yeah not in the bible either and you know you probably don't know what that word means but you're going to figure out here and just just it means you probably recently were at an ed young leadership conference and you didn't prepare a sermon that's what that means just a few minutes. See, God wants you to be a tenacious leader. God wants those around you to be uh, a tenacious uh, a leader. And so... Yeah, so where in the Bible does it say that God wants me to be a tenacious leader? I'm not familiar with that passage. You haven't read a single passage yet. I want to read to you what God's Word says. I yeah, please. I'd really like to see this from God's Word. I bet you anything that when we put those verses back in context, they won't say those things that you're trying to make them say. Actually, when it comes to train up children to us as a parents, because you see, God doesn't just see little children. God sees little children that are a part of something great and to do something incredible with their life. And so no matter whether you're actually parenting or you're training people at your Fortune 500 company or you're a school teacher or a coach and you're training up a team, or you're actually trying to help other people around you, your peers, uh, reach their God potential and achieve the great things in their life, or you yourself are actually wanting to achieve those things with your life. The actual training techniques work together and actually can apply to all those, those situations. Listen to what it says about training children in God's Word. Proverbs 22, verse 6. It says, train a child in the way he should go, in the way he or she should go. Now, a lot of times when people read that verse, they misunderstand what that verse means. Literally what that verse means is train a child in the way he or she should go, in the way that they are shaped, in the way that they are wired, according to their giftedness, in the way that they learn. Did you know that people learn different ways? People don't all... Yeah, okay, let's point something out here. One verse, a proverb, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Hmm, the word should is there. Should. In the way he should go. So if I was a parent and I read this passage and I were thinking to myself, okay, what is the way that I should raise up my child? What is the, when I'm training up my child, what is the way that he or she, because I have girls too, that they should go? You know, so, so is this saying that what I really need to do 
is pay close attention to how they're shaped so that I see the God potential in them so that they can achieve their dream destiny. Well, tough for me to divine what my child's destiny or career is going to be. In fact, it would be difficult for me to talk about this in terms of career path because the word should is in there. Okay, so train up a child in the way he should go. Well, the only shoulds that I know of that scripture would clearly say are shoulds would be the things that my son or daughters ought to do or ought not to do. Those are the shoulds. Okay, this passage is pointing us back to God's law. Okay, God's law. It clearly its primary purpose is to show us our sin, but for us Christians, it shows us what a good work is. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we don't despise the Ten Commandments. No, we see that we we see the Ten Commandments as holy and right, and we delight in them. Right? So, not you will not have other gods. You, um, you don't take the Lord's God, uh, name in vain. You keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery. Uh, covet, you know, fornal caboodle and things like that. Those are the things they ought to do and not to do, right? Those are the shoulds. So train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The shoulds are how somebody is to behave as a Christian. And that requires me to teach them God's word in the shoulds and the should nots. Does it not say that? So, mm, sorry, um, Clay. This passage doesn't say anything about God potential or being a tenacious leader or a gonacious leader or anything of the sort. The thing that I'm supposed to train my child up in is in the word of the Lord. All learn the same way. I mean, people are audio learners, visual learners, and they learn with a lot of different senses. And everybody learns a different way. And the Bible says that actually God has wired people differently and gifted people differently. And so it's a really important thing if we're going to train up children in the way they should go for us to understand their nature and their, their disposition. But, in, you know, and that goes for you if you're running a company. It's really important for you to understand the nature and the disposition and the gifting and the way those underneath you learn. So now we're talking about the importance of understanding the giftings of your employees. Yeah, I don't think Proverbs 22 is uh, getting at that. Yeah, again, have you passed remedial hermeneutics? I'm curious. In order to help them succeed, help them succeed in life. And a lot of times we don't study that and we don't understand that. And we wonder why people go and wreck their life. It's just simply because they haven't been trained with the potential in them because we didn't understand their, their wiredness. I thought the reason why people wreck their lives is because they're born dead in trespasses and sins. Who knew it was because they didn't receive the proper vocational training that suited to their, their preference for how they learn and their shape? I had no idea that that's the reason why people wreck their life. I thought Scripture teaches that people wreck their life because they don't love God with all their heart and they don't love their neighbor as their self. They're born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. Who knew it was just they lacked the proper vocational training? In the way that they learn and their, their giftedness. And so it says, train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. In other words, he'll be consistent with what he's learned or she has learned about her potential and they'll live that out and they'll be yeah you're engaging in eisegesis now by the way eisegesis is when you read things into the text rather than exegete notice when i 
took a look at this verse, I exegeted, paid close attention to the words, the word should, as a, as a way of understanding what is being said here. You, Clay, are engaging in eisegesis. You're reading in this God potential garbage and shape and all this kind of stuff and vocational training that's not there in the text. That's not what, what it's referring to. Become that tenacious leader in life. So how do you do that? How do you train that God potential? There's no greater place to look at than the way that Jesus trained 12 men who were tenacious leaders that actually began to spread the good news about him around the world. And Yeah, they spread the good news about Jesus. Why don't you preach about that like they did? Because you're supposed to be preaching their words, and their words point us to Christ. Now you're trying to figure out Jesus' leadership training technique? Funny enough, the Bible never really lays that out. We can only try to backwards engineer it by what we saw, because never does Jesus lay it out as a how-to. It's exactly why you and I are sitting here today, because Jesus had a model in the way that he trained tenacious leaders, those 12 men called disciples. A disciple is simply a follower, a student, or a a learner, and the Bible says Jesus trained 12 of them, and they were tenacious, and they did something incredible with their life. And so if you want to train up tenacious kids, you want to train up tenacious employees, you want to train up tenacious leaders, actually, in uh, the church world, the principles all are, are the same. And so the first thing I wrote down about Jesus training these tenacious leaders is this, and if you and I want to do the same, we've got to build a bridge to their heart. You may want to write that down this week. Why would I want to write that down, build a bridge to their heart? Where in the Bible does it say Jesus built a bridge to their heart? I can't think of a single passage that says that in any of the Gospels. What are you talking about? This weekend. Uh, you got to build a bridge to their heart. Uh, you see, because unless you capture somebody's heart, then you'll never be able to pour the, uh, the, the things that will bring out that potential in them. And Do you have a verse that says that? Really? I, again, I just, you're making all these assertions, but you're not actually teaching this from any texts that say these things. Jesus was a master at captivating people's heart and building a bridge to their heart so he could train them up with the gifts and the skills and the way that they were actually, they were actually wired. And you and I have to do the same thing. So how did Jesus do? Where does it say I have to do the same thing? So I've got to go and gather, gather 12 guys and disciple them the way Jesus did? What are you talking about? Do this. How did he build that bridge to their heart so that they could accomplish those great things in life that he had created created them to do. And in order to discover how he did this, we've got to read a couple of different passages of Scripture and put those two passages together. Yeah, let's take a look at those passages in order to discover how he did this, despite the fact that none of the disciples actually laid this out as a teaching. By the way, here's how Jesus did it. You're going to try to just divine this by looking at his actions. Good luck. And the first one is actually in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. Now, uh, keep in mind that um, what it says here is actually that Jesus one day, as he was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, which also in the scripture we know as Peter. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water. The Bible says, for they fished for a living. 
You could put anything in that passage. You know, they fished for a living. They built houses for a living. They were a stay-at-home mom. You know, whatever you want to put. But the Bible says that these guys actually fished for a living. The Bible says that Jesus called out to them, Come follow me and I will show you how to fish for a people. The Bible says, And they left their nets at once and followed and followed him. In another passage, it says they left everything. They actually walked away from their families and left everything they'd ever known and began to follow Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that kind of strange. Because if somebody walked in this room today and says, hey, come follow me, you know what? And I'm going to help you learn how to change the world. I'd be like, dude, you're crazy. I don't know you, and I'm not willing to follow you because I don't know where you're leading me to. But whenever we read this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 1, our, our, as we observe this, we uh, kind of get this idea that all of a sudden, you know, Jesus just walks by the shore of Galilee, come follow me. These guys walk away from everything they'd ever known and begin to follow uh, Jesus. But in order to really understand how this happened, you've got to understand how Scripture kind of fits together. And that's why it's really important to to begin to understand that this wasn't the first time that these guys had ever met Jesus. They had already spent about a year, year and a half with Jesus before he says this to them. Really, they spent an entire year already with Jesus? Really? I'd like to see that passage. On that, on that shoreline on that particular day. But when you read Mark chapter 1, you kind of are underneath this impression this is the first time that these guys ever have seen Jesus or heard about Jesus or as he walked by. But if you study the context and the flow of Scripture and you begin to put the four Gospels that we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you understand that this is later after they had met Jesus long, long before, about a year, year and a half earlier. There's a great, great resource that if you want to study that way, that you can use to get the flow of Scripture. It's called the Harmony of the Gospels. And you can just kind of pick that up and you can begin to to understand how things flow and how things are put together in order to understand the meaning behind uh, different things in Scripture. You may want to write that down and and pick that up uh, sometimes. But we see him say, come follow me. You know what? I know you fish for a living, but I'm getting ready to teach you how how to fish for people. But where did they first meet meet Jesus? Well, according to the Bible, where we know that they first met Jesus is actually one day when one of a guy named John the Baptist's followers kind of got introduced to Jesus through John the Baptist. John the Baptist said something like this. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that culture, they would have understood what that meant, that this is the guy that's coming to help us succeed in life, the guy that's coming to actually forgive us and move us forward in life. And then it says this, as John the Baptist said that, in John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said, and then he followed Jesus. The Bible says that Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. And then Andrew, he brought Simon to meet Jesus, looking intently. Okay, let me read this in context, okay? Gospel of John chapter 1. Watch what's going on here. I mean, so he's trying to somehow make sense of the fact that Jesus said to them in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, follow me and I'll make your fishers of men. 
And he's basically saying, why would they do that? And the reason why they did that is because they already knew Jesus and already been hanging out with him for a year. Um, oh, man. Okay. I want to point something out here. Okay. When you look at the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and then he immediately goes into the wilderness and is tempted for how long? Forty days, right? And then Jesus begins his ministry and begins calling his disciples. It's pretty clear what's going on. Now, there, there, there are far better people who've done the work of harmonizing the Gospel of John with the, with the Synoptic Gospels accounts on this. But, yeah, the point is that he's trying to make is that, well, the only reason why they did this is because they'd already known Jesus for a year. But I don't think you can justify that from the Gospel of John or from the Gospel of Mark. That he's basically taking the miraculous out. You want to know why they followed him, even though that doesn't make sense? Because when Jesus speaks and says he's God in human flesh and what he says, he's able to get because that's who he is. You know, there was a miracle going on here. But, uh, you know, he said to them, they will become fishers of men, and they left their nets and followed him. Right on, okay? We continue. At him, Simon said Jesus, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means uh, Peter, which ultimately means, which ultimately means rock. Now, I don't know about you. But if a guy walked up and called me the rock, I'd be like, you are the man. I'm going to follow you anywhere. Okay? But he called uh, Peter. He named him a rock. This is where Peter first meets Jesus about a year and a half later. It's where he says, come and follow me. And, and so what is the importance of putting these two passages together? To understand that in order to build a bridge to people's heart, we've got to actually have, um, we've got to have a relationship with people. And we've got to be very, very relevant with uh, people. These passages don't teach any of that at all. You see, in John chapter 1, they meet Jesus. But what's amazing is John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 all happen before we get to Mark uh, chapter 1, where we read that passage where Jesus says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And so what they have done is they met Jesus, and then in, in John uh, chapter 2, they actually go to a wedding, and they see Jesus wow him. He turns water into wine, and they're like, dude, this guy is another level. But the Bible says that they kind of... Yeah, you need to stop listening to Ed Young. That's your problem. ...kind of go back to their own way of doing life, and then they kind of kind of are in and out of a relationship with Jesus, kind of a convenient relationship. What? So now, now we're just going to just insert into what you think is this gap in the timeline, information that's not even there that apparently they had a, a, a relationship of convenience with Jesus. But that's just you inserting into this timeline that you've created in the into the blank space data that isn't even there. Unbelievable. Just kind of learning when they can, a lot like people are in church today. A convenient relationship. Just kind of learn. Nothing wrong with that. It's kind of where the journey starts. But they see Jesus do this miracle. And then the Bible says in John chapter 3, they go through the city. They meet this religious dude. This guy like that is the top of his class. His name is Nicodemus. And Jesus actually begins to share with them how to have him how to have life. He says you can't just be born out of a woman. You also got to be born of the spirit. And then you can live out your God potential, so to say. It's where the most famous. What? What? 
Really? So when Jesus met with Nicodemus, he told him that he not only needs to be born of a woman, he has to be born of a spirit so that he can achieve his God potential. Well, let's take a look at that passage. I had never seen that in the Gospel of John chapter 3. Have you seen that in the Gospel of John? I haven't seen that in the Gospel of John chapter 3. But if you have your Bible, go on over to John chapter 3. Let's find out about this God potential thing that Jesus taught Nicodemus. John chapter 3 verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See the kingdom of God is not the same as have your God potential, by the way. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to that which we have seen. But you did not receive our testimony. If I had told you the truth, er, uh, if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Notice here. You know that story of the serpent, that the, the bronze serpent that was put on a pole? Remember, the, the nation of Israel grumbled against God and against Moses, and God sent fiery serpents into the camp of Israel, and people were being bit by these things and dying, and so they repented and prayed for forgiveness and mercy, and God didn't remove the curse from them. He did, Just like he doesn't remove the curse from us, God did not remove the curse from them. He had Moses craft a bronze serpent that was then put up on a pole, and if they were bit by one of these fiery serpents, they were to look to the bronze serpent and they would be saved, right? That was a type and shadow that points us to Christ. Here, Christ says, the, um, he says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but the people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, well, there, there's the passage. Let me uh, review, uh, back this up just a little bit so we can hear Clay telling us about what Nicodemus and Jesus were apparently talking about. There's all of it. 
Let's see if it if it fits, if it jives, if the two go together, if what he's saying is true. Is he teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine? Or is he scratching itching ears and having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof? They see Jesus do this miracle, and then the Bible says in John chapter 3, they go through the city, they meet this religious dude, this guy like at the top of his class, his name is Nicodemus, and Jesus actually begins to share with them how to have him how to have life. He says you can't just be born out of a woman, you also got to be born of the Spirit, and then you can live out your God potential, so to say. It's where the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Yeah, so then you can live out your God potential. Huh. It's not what the passage says at all. You're just making stuff up, Clay. It was found, John chapter 3, verse 16. And so they see Jesus minister to this, this incredible, incredible religious scholar named Nicodemus. And then we get to John chapter 4, and actually they are kind of going with Jesus, and Jesus begins to tell them, you know, there's potential in you, but there's also potential in all the world. He goes cross-culturally in this. Really, in John chapter 4, Jesus says there's potential in you and there's potential in the world? Huh. Which verse is that again? In this place that those kind of people, Jewish people, didn't go in Samaria. And he actually meets with a wayward, weary woman at a well there in Samaria. A lady who had been married five times in that culture. You didn't talk to women. If you were a Jewish man, Jesus sits down, talks to this lady, explains to her that, you know what, she has God potential, explains to her who he is, and she goes into her city. And Really? J Jesus explains to the Samaritan woman at the well that she has God potential? Yeah, I don't see anything about God potential in chapter 4. Yeah, well, this is where we're at, by the way. All right, let's take a look. God, John chapter 4, a woman from Samaria came in, uh, to draw water. So Jesus was in Samaria, by the way. And uh, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus would have given her living water. Not a word here about her God potential. Okay. So the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, and the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and am he. Do you think this is about this woman's God potential or about the Messiah? It's about the Messiah. So that just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? Huh? She was <laughs> immediately. She goes and preaches that Jesus is the Messiah. She preaches about Jesus, not her God potential. Weird. I think that uh, Clay has totally missed the point here. They went out of town and were coming him, uh, coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, right? So um, he says, I have food to eat that you did not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is reaping wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Huh. Rather than telling us about the Samaritan woman's God potential, the scriptures tell us, she was obsessed with proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah and that the Samaritans there, who were idolaters before this, proclaimed Jesus to be the Savior of the world. They were not interested in their God potential. They were interested in their Savior. Weird. I think Clay has totally missed the point. Begins to change her community. And these guys had seen all this stuff. And now Jesus walks by the shore of Galilee, and he says, come, follow me. You know what? I know you're fishing, but I'm going to make you into fishers of men. I'm going to make you into, into world uh, uh, changers. And so Jesus had been intentional. At I'm going to make you into world changers? The text doesn't say that. You just put that in there. Building a relationship with these guys, and he had been intentional at being relevant with these guys right where they are. You know, here at Barefoot Church, that's exactly well, we so now you're going to preach about yourself now. Yeah, because you just inserted that stuff about him being intentional and relevant. And so that's because now you're going to talk about you. Got it. Okay. Invite you to invite your friends to church with you. Because the truth of the matter is I'm just some guy up here speaking words on a platform trying to be very relevant and connect this good news about Jesus to people's heart. and people. Don't What's the good news again about being a gonacious, tenacious leader? I, the, the Bible doesn't teach this, so this isn't good news. This is called false doctrine. Don't trust me, but they trust you. And see, when they trust you and we partner together and we present something relevant where it connects with their heart, guess what happens? 
Their life has changed, and now they can be trained. So their life is changed by you trying to be relevant? I thought their life is changed when they are brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins through the proclamation of God's word. God's word is what does the work, not your relevance. And become that great person that God has created them to be. You see, Jesus invi- he stepped into their world, invited him, my, invited them to step into His world, so that actually they could change the world. And that's why we encourage you to invite your friends. That's why we encourage you to t- pick up some of those invite cards when we do series every single week. You know, because we want to speak in a relevant way to all people so that they can connect to the God of the universe and become those great people that God has created them to be. You know, yeah, because it's all about them becoming great people that God wants them to be. Wow, it's all about their God potential so they may be tenacious, gonacious leaders. Who knew? You know, over in children's ministry, we are actually speaking in a relevant way that speaks to children. They're not just babysitting your kids over there. What's incredible is they're speaking to your kids in a language they can understand in a relevant way that connects with them so that they can learn right there where they are, three and four years old, that they have God potential and greatness is in them. And God wants to do amazing things through them. Whoa. So you're you're telling them that they have God potential and greatness is in them. You're not confronting them with their sins and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Wow, you're teaching them narcissism, not humble contrition and repentance. Wow. Not just one day, but starting uh, today. You see, it's really, really important to be relevant with people where they are in life and help them understand that their world actually uh, fits with his plan, that how God has wired them, how God has designed them helps them fit with his plan. He, he sees them as being a piece of his great plan, of his great a masterpiece. And how they fit into that actually begins to help them live out their God potential and change the world. So in other words, if I'm talking to a guy who owns a business, I, I talk to him and I begin to help him understand that, you know what, making money and all those people you lead is a potential for you to change the world. I don't always talk to him the same way I would talk to a teacher. You talk to a teacher a little bit different than you talk to a business guy. You're just relevant. You meet them where they are to help them get to where they need to be. You you talk to children different than you talk to adults. You talk to somebody that is running after life very hard at 30 years old different than you maybe sometimes you would talk to a retiree. And so it's really, really important for you to understand the context and who you are talking to. You know, that's what makes it difficult sometimes from speaking from a platform because you know what? There's different people in the room at different places in life and they come from different backgrounds and different cultures, but we have to figure out a way for God to connect with their heart and be- Do you know that in 1937, H. Richard Niebuhr summarized liberal Christianity by basically saying this, that their message is, they're preaching a God without wrath um, brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's, that's a description that H. Richard Niebuhr came up with to describe liberalism and their message. 
I think this is pretty much the same thing. A God without wrath that brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Like a God without wrath who brought men without sin. In fact, it's, it's even worse than that. Men who have a God potential, okay, into a kingdom without judgment. This is nothing but rehashed liberalism in purpose-driven language all claiming to be biblically based. We believe the Bible rather than the liberals. At least the liberals back then would openly attack the Bible. You guys don't even have the chutzpah to openly attack the Bible and go with your convictions. You just completely emasculate the Bible and rip it to shreds and say, oh, yeah, we believe it, but we don't teach it. Be relevant to every single situation when we meet to those people. But if they trust you and then they begin to understand in a way that they can learn about this great God and he wants to do amazing things in their life. He wants to forgive them and raise them up to be that incredible thing that he has created them to be. Then everything uh, changes. You've got to see the potential and then you've got to actually bridge. You've got to bridge to their heart, build a bridge to their heart. And you do that by actually being relevant and being in relationship with people. You know, parents, can I tell you something? If, if you want to build a bridge to your kid's heart, then get in a relationship with them. Spend some time with your kids. Get into their world. Begin to understand who they are so you can help them step into his world, and then they can uh, change the world. How much time are you really spending with your kids? Are you trying to make your kids a clone and just like you? Are you discovering their shape, their learning style, the way they give, and are you encouraging them to live out how God has wired them to be? It's really, really important for us to grab hold and us to understand as we're launching people into their God destiny, as we're training up tenacious leaders. We've got to build a bridge, a bridge to their heart. The second thing that I wrote down in my journal about the way Jesus trained these 12, these 12 tenacious, ganacious uh, leaders is you know, this. We've actually got to encourage them and give them a clear identity and clear understanding. A clear identity and clear understanding. Can I tell you something? That's why people are running all over the place today and not understanding what life is all about. They don't know who they are. You know, uh, parents aren't giving kids a clear identity. Just kind of like, you know, do life however you want to do it. And get your identity from whatever you watch on TV. You know, you know the news will give you an identity. You know that the, actually the movies that your kids watch will give them an identity. But are you giving your kids, are you parenting, are you training, are you giving them a clear identity? Uh, you know, because if they don't have a clear identity, then they just wander all over the place searching for identity. You know what, some people in here today are 65 years old and they still don't know who they are. They're still searching for who they are in life. But once you understand and you get out of that identity... If you're confused about who you are, pull out your wallet and look at your driver's license. It should give you some information about who you are. If you're, con if you're, if you're still confused after that, find somebody who knows you and ask them, who am I? Quick, solve the problem and move on. But you don't need to talk about this in, during a sermon time in a church.
anti-crisis and you understand there is a living God who has created you for significance and purpose and you begin to grab hold of that identity that changes everything and then you've got to get an understanding of how your identity fits into life in order for you to change change the world you got to learn how pshaw none of this is taught in the bible this is just the mindless, empty babblings and empty words of a man who's abdicated his responsibility to preach the word. The purpose of your identity and why you're here on planet Earth. Get a clear understanding and, and, and of, of exactly why you are here. A clear identity and a clear understanding. But a lot of people, they don't discover this. And this is exactly what Jesus does in this, in this passage of Scripture. And, and, and how he does it in Matthew chapter 28, he had spent about three years giving these guys clear identity and clear purpose and clear understanding of why they were on the planet. And then he actually tells them, all right, now what I want you to do is I want you to go raise up more tenacious leaders, more students, more followers to change the world. And he says, here's how you do it. Listen to what it says. Notice all the things he's inserting into this text. You need to go raise up more tenacious leaders who will change the world. That's not what Jesus said to do. That's eisegesis. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. The Bible says that Jesus came to them and said, this is Laden, uh, his journey with them. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that's a powerful statement. We read that in the scripture, and we don't even think about what that means. All of, can you imagine if all authority has been given to you over all of earth and all of heaven? That's the statement Jesus makes. He says, man, I am the king of the universe. I am the one that gives you purpose. I am the one that gives you identity. Don't forget this. You are world changers. Have some tenacity. Be a leader and go out and spread the good news around the world. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations everywhere. Go and make more students, more learners of this good news. And then he says, baptizing them. Everybody say baptizing. You see, we say that word and we don't understand that word. Now, what he's going to say next proves he doesn't understand the word either. Baptism is simply an identity. It's saying that, you know what, that I have stopped doing life my own way. I've died to my old self. And when I'm dunked underwater, it's a symbolic way to say that, you know what, I've given that up. And when I'm raised out of the water, I'm identifying myself as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm on his team. I put on the God uh, jersey. That's what bat Really, where in the Bible does it say that, you're, that baptism is a symbol that shows that you're on Jesus' team? You're on team Jesus. Where does the Bible say that? Let me give you what the Apostle Peter says about baptism in Acts chapter 2 and see if this jives with what you're saying. Okay, Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is the great day of Pentecost, the great sermon. Right? You know, Peter has just blistered them with the law and preached the gospel to them. And here's what it says. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, point this out. The word there for baptize in verse 38, be baptized, that's in the passive voice. Okay, so in other words, it's not something you're actively doing. Okay, in fact, it's the third person singular aorist passive imperative. Okay, it's something that is done to you. The very language, be baptized, because it's in the passive voice, makes it clear this isn't something you're doing. It's something that's being done to you. That means baptism is God's work, not yours. And it says specifically what it's for, okay? And, okay, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the text says. It doesn't say be bat to. It doesn't say. It doesn't say, come and do baptism, in the active voice. Do baptism to put on the team jersey to show that you're on team Jesus. It says be baptized passive for the forgiveness of sins. If we're going to talk about baptism, we got to talk about it biblically. This is this is absolutely asinine. It's unbelievable that the vast majority of Christians in the United States have no clue what baptism is because they won't pay attention to what the Bible says about it. They approach these texts as if they know better than God the Holy Spirit what baptism is and what it isn't, what God can and cannot do in the waters of baptism. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, says, Be baptized, passive, for the forgiveness of sins. So if we're going to talk about baptism, we should talk about it biblically. Want another passage that talks about baptism? And let's adopt its language. We could say Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us, this is verse 3, who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death just as Christ was raised from the dead. We can say that in baptism our sins are forgiven. We're baptized into Christ's death and to his resurrection. Or you can go to Colossians chapter 2. It talks about that our hearts are circumcised by the hands of Christ himself in the waters of our baptism. If we're going to talk about baptism, let's use biblical language, not this stuff. Okay? Unbelievable. Baptism is. And Jesus says, I want you to go baptize people, identify people. You know what? Give them a clear identity that they are followers of me, and I have a purpose, and I have a plan for their life. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is actually uh, a simple way for you to identify with a messenger. Actually, in this culture, people were baptized all the time for all kinds of things. And they would be baptized, and when they were baptized in a river or baptized themselves in a river somewhere, simply what they were saying is, you know what? I am turning from my way of thinking, and I'm going to follow this messenger's way of thinking and people were baptized all the time and he says baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit tell them to identify that they are my followers and so we do that here at barefoot church we give people a clear identity we baptize we're doing a beach baptism today at 6 30 p.m at the end of main street 75 people i think thus far have signed up to be publicly identified as followers of jesus christ put on their god jersey this week yet the bible doesn't ever talk about baptism that way if you disagree with me show me the verses that say this we can't 
today. Big party, big celebration. We just did one four weeks ago. That's this month. Last month we baptized about 75 people who put on their God jersey and said that we are a Christ followers. We're going to do that today. And if you're here, you can go to the beach at 6.30 p.m. You can celebrate that with us. It's going to be a big party down there. And if you have never identified yourself as a follower of Jesus, guess what? Today could be the day that you publicly identify yourself and make a statement to the world and say, you know what? I declare my identity is found in Christ. I'm a follower of him, and I am here to ultimately change the world. And we will celebrate that with you today. It's going to be an incredible party. So show up 6.30 p.m. at the beach right here at the end of Main Street. If you want to sign up for that, Connection Lounge in the rear of the auditorium, you can do that today before you leave this service. But that's a simple way to say that I have my identity in a Christ, and I have moved out of the identity crisis into finding my identity in who God says I am. And then he goes on to say, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the... Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Teaching them all, all, to observe all. Why aren't you teaching God's word and teaching all of it? You're not, well, doing what this text says to do. It's not just teaching any old thing. It's teaching God's word, all of it. You're not doing that, and you're doing a miserable job at this point. The very end of the age. Basically, he says, begin to help them understand that they have purpose. I've commanded them to do things so that they have... Begin to help them to understand they have purpose? The text does not say that. You're inserting that. Boundaries in their life. You know, boundaries are a good thing. Do you know boundaries can help you score touchdowns in life? I mean, if you're an athlete and you stay inside the boundaries, guess what can happen? You can score incredible touchdowns. If you're a basketball player, if you stay inside the boundaries, you can put the ball through the net. And Jesus has set boundaries for you and me. And we call them commands and uh, ways to live life. And the reason for that is so we can discover our God potential. Oh, man, this is, I, this is so blasphemous. I don't even know. I, ah, I don't even know if I get through this thing. And God knows a whole lot more about our boundaries than we do. But when we discover what those boundaries are and we live inside of those lines, guess what happens? Incredible, incredible vision is caught, and we can do incredible, incredible things with our... Right, so just live inside the boundaries, and then you'll catch vision so that you can change the word in a gonaceous way. All law, no gospel, eisegesis like you wouldn't believe, man-centered, not Christ-centered, Total Bible twisting. I mean, seriously, what in this sermon can you point to that demonstrates that he's qualified, according to the biblical qualifications of a teacher in the church, to be teaching anybody anything? Our life. That's the problem with people today. They, they don't know the boundaries. And they're, they're here and they're there and they're trying to discover all kinds of things with their life. Trying to make sense of of life. You know, the Bible says where there is no vision, where there is no revelation of God, it says that people actually waste away. In other words, they... Yes, yes. I'm familiar with the Proverbs passage. Read it in context because when you read the rest of the verse, it says clearly what the vision of God is. That would be the the revealed word of God in the Bible, the Torah. It's mentioned right there in that proverb. 
They live 60, 70, 80 years here on planet Earth, never find that significant purpose, and they waste away in life. Can I, hear, can I declare to you today something? This is just flat out false teaching of the highest magnitude. Something? God has a significant purpose for your life. God has a plan for your life. God has a vision for your life. And it is to be a part of something greater than yourself. It is to be a part of what he calls his bride. It's called the local uh, uh, church. And when you begin to discover that and you begin to follow Jesus with your life, incredible things begin to happen, begin to happen in, in your life. But, you know, a lot of times we don't identify people and we don't set those boundaries. Jesus set two major boundaries. And he summed it all up with this, Matthew 22. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, discover who God is and begin to understand and, and have a love relationship with him and understand he wants you to achieve great things. And then he says the second is a lot like that. He says, love others as you love yourself. Yeah, the, that's the summary of the law. How are you doing at that? That's the thing that condemns you because when you look at those two commandments and then you look at your life, understanding that's the standard, you realize you ain't pulling it off. And that can't be what saves you. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 3 and in the whole book of Galatians, makes it clear that we are not saved by loving God and loving neighbor. Instead, we're saved because Christ perfectly loved God and loved neighbor in our place, and his righteousness is given to us as a gift through faith. Just like our sin was laid on him, his righteousness is laid on us as a gift. Read Philippians chapter 3. In other words, love God, discover who you are, and then love others and begin to spread this good news about a resurrected Jesus who wants to resurrect their life around the world. Love others and begin to share this message. The good news that Jesus wants to resurrect your life, that is not the good news. You don't know what the gospel is, sir. Message. You know, that's incredible. A lot of times we don't want to share the message of Christianity because we're scared we're going to offend somebody. I'm like, dude, it's the great news. It's the good news. That's what gospel means. It's the good news. Go and share it with somebody with your gifts, your talents. Love God. Understand he's cre created you with great, great attributes. That don't mean get on a, st a street corner and yell, turn or burn. No, get out there and share some good news that God has changed my life and he'll change your life too. It's good news. God has incredible boundaries for us so we can score touchdowns. So we can. Oh, no, the good news, <clears throat> by the way, let me give you the biblical passage here. If you'd like a summary of the gospel, uh, defined uh, by God the Holy Spirit Himself, you'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's not that you get to go score touchdowns. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's the good news. Are you ready? For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scripture, and then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the other apostles, and last of all to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The good news is that Christ died for our sins. This guy's preaching a false gospel, okay? And I would warn him. In fact, I'm sure he's listening, so 
I will warn him to his face. Clay, you're preaching a false gospel and you are in danger of the fires of hell. You do not know what the biblical gospel is. You think it's the good news that God has boundaries for us? That's the law. That's not the gospel. And Paul wrote an entire letter to the churches in Galatia who were believing the same lie. And here's what he says to them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be damned, accursed, anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. Clay, you're preaching a false gospel, and I mean that. This is not the biblical gospel. This is not the biblical good news. And I don't care if you have 50,000 multi-sites or that you appear in an, as an angel of light. You're preaching a false gospel and you are in danger of the very fires of hell themselves. You're not qualified to be a preacher and what you're teaching is false. You are preaching narcissistic garbage and filling people's heads with things that are not true. You're not confronting them with their sin and bringing them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins because he died on the cross and rose again for their sins and for their justification. And that's not the thing you're preaching. You're preaching the law as good news. The law is not good news. It's bad news. You're preaching these people straight into hell. Can knock the ball out of the park so we can put the ball through the net. He's talking to you today. It's good news. And he wants you to run in those, those boundaries. He says, you know what? Give them clear identity and clear understanding. I want to challenge you if you've never been publicly baptized. As you have put your faith in Jesus. I didn't say somebody else baptized you because they wanted you baptized. You have put your faith. You have trusted Jesus with your life. Today could be the day that you identify yourself and get on the God journey and begin to watch God do amazing amazing things in your life build a bridge to their heart bring clear understanding and and clear identity uh, to them the next thing i wrote down about training tenacious leaders is that actually you know uh, you also got to equip them that's what jesus did he equipped people i mean you you can teach for so long in a classroom but unless you involve people they never are equipped that's why we invite you here at barefoot church to get on a ministry team it's a place you're equipped to discover who God has created you to be. And without being on a ministry team, then guess what? You never discover all of who God has created you to be. And so I stand on this platform week after week after week. And I encourage you, I don't care if you're retired, I encourage you, get in the game. You're not retired from God's work in your life. You know what, you got a heart beating your chest, you got air in your lungs, and God wants to do an amazing, amazing thing uh, uh, through you. But you discover that by being by being involved. And Jesus involved these guys, and he began to help them discover who they were, and he equipped them by putting them in the game. You see, Jesus had begun to bring understanding and encourage them in their identity and actually their purpose in life. But here's where he begins to bring out their passions. You see, God has put passions in you, and it's through equipping you and allowing you to participate. So you can. You'll notice he's not exegeting a biblical passage. 
he's just making all of these assertions. These are like purpose-driven slogans, but none of them are taught in Scripture. And discover what those things are. And in Luke chapter 9, this is what it says about Jesus engaging people and equipping them and getting them in the game. It says, one day Jesus called together his 12 disciples again, these tenacious leaders, and he gave them the power and the authority to cast out all demons. I mean, seriously, do you think the Gospels are written so that we can figure out what tenacious leaders the disciples were? Or what an amazing Savior we have in Jesus? Do you think, really, that the primary people in the, in the Gospels are the disciples and that Jesus is there in a coaching role, basically leading them to their great destiny? That's what the story is about? I'm sorry, but the disciples are, they are in a supporting role of Christ's story about what he's doing for us and what he's done for us. Yes, he did train them. Yes, he did teach them. But man, they are not the center of the story. You are totally got this backwards and upside down. Demons and to heal all diseases. But there was a purpose in that. It says that he sent them out. Everybody say sent them out. It says to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In other words, to share the good news. And so they go out and they do it. And then if you study the context there, they eventually come back to Jesus, the great coach, and they report back to him. And Jesus kind of gives them the pros. And well, there it is. Jesus, the great coach. Yeah, life coach Jesus. It's, it's really all about Jesus making disciples just spectacular, gonaceous leaders. Unbelievable. Cons of what they did, what they did right and what they, what they did wrong. Look what it says there in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. It says, when the apostles, when these disciples, they returned, they told Jesus everything they had done, and then he slipped quietly away with them towards the town of Bethsaida. Now, they told Jesus what they had done, and then the Bible says they, they returned, they told him, and then Jesus slipped away in order to basically talk to them about what was right and what was wrong about that, what they had done in order to coach them to greatness. Talk to them about their failures, bring correction, bring coaching. So, that so to coach them to greatness. See, Jesus wants to coach you to greatness too. Wow, what a great gospel that is. Jesus wants to coach you to greatness. Absolutely not what the Bible teaches at all. They could move forward with what he had created them to be. The Bible says there in Luke chapter 10, eventually Jesus sends out 72, not just 12, to do the same exact thing. But if you study that passage, what's amazing to me is how Jesus corrected those 72. Is, is they went out and they were all excited with their passions and stuff, but they forgot their purpose. They went out with their passions and they got all fired up and they, were, they came back and said, Jesus, it's amazing. We say something in your name and man, all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And man, that power you gave us is awesome. And Jesus, he says, oh, slow down just a minute. Don't start worshiping the power I gave you. He says, remember the purpose I gave you. Remember that, you know what, that I have actually written your name. I'm the one that gave you the power. I'm the one that gave you eternal life. Don't forget about your eternal life and that you're to share that with other people. You know, people worship they worship the power that they have, the gifts they have, the passions that they have a lot of times. I mean, you know, and, and, and they forget their purpose. I mean, Lord God, the power is on me. 
It's on you for a purpose. Don't worship the power that God gives you. Worship the one who gave you the power and accomplish his purpose. And Jesus simply corrects them, and he says, don't forget, I am the one that gave you eternal life. You should be getting jacked up and excited about that and sharing that good news with uh, the rest of the world. And, and that's coaching, man, and, and that's correction, and, and that's helping you become great in life to live out your uh, passions. You know, I, I wrote this in my journal this week, and I think this is an incredible, incredible statement. It may be the tweetable moment. Yeah, yeah, tweetable moment is something from your journal, not from the Bible, but from your journal. That's just great. Moment of all times today, and I wrote it down this way. Failure is not an option in succeeding in life. It is a necessity. If you want to live out your God potential, failure is not an option. It is a necessity for you to discover who God is. But see, a lot of times people think, I have failed. I have messed up. God could never use me in any capacity in life. I mean, I screwed this sermon's all about me, 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 me. It's all about me, my greatness, my purpose, my special duty. Jesus is going to coach me to greatness. Me, me. And, and, and on the way to greatness, failure is not an option. It's, it's necessary. It's mandatory. It's all about me, me, me. I screwed up my marriage. I screwed up my family. I've gone the wrong way for too long. I'm here to declare to you today, failure is not an option. It is a necessity for you to discover who God is and for you to live out your God potential. Peter, one of these 12, one of these 12 that followed Jesus, tenacious a leader. At the end of Jesus' life, the Bible says that he actually denied Jesus as his leader three times. He became afraid. He failed. D denied Jesus as his leader? Really? Wow. I thought he denied that he even knew him. Unbelievable. Miserably. He went and hid in the corner somewhere like, I don't know that dude. I mean, y'all go ahead and put him on a cross. You kill him. Don't put me there. I don't know who he is. And he runs and he fails miserably. But what's amazing is in his failure <clears throat> is where he discovers, you know what, who God is and what God wants to do through his life. What what passage are you getting that from? Wow, I had no idea this was what was going on inside Peter's head. Because in his failure, you find in John chapter 21, after Jesus is resurrected and before he ascends back to heaven, he goes and meets with Peter. And he begins to share with Peter about love and grace. And he begins to understand, you know what, love and grace, Peter does. And it was in his failure that he discovers about love and grace. And that, and Jesus says something remarkable to him. He says, actually feed my sheep, Peter. You know what, I want you to feed my sheep. There's a purpose in all of this. I want you to go and share the good news with other people and help them to discover who God is has created them to be and really um hmm let me read let me read this john 21 verse 15 through 19 see if you can find in these verses anywhere where jesus is telling peter you need to go help people discover what it is i want them to be okay here here's the interchange between jesus and peter 
Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to them, follow me. Yep, I don't see anything there about Jesus saying, go and help people discover you know, their God potential and what it is that I want them to be. Let me back that up. See, I just read the passage for you. Let's see if Jesus actually said what Clay here is saying that he said. Peter. And he begins to share with Peter about love and grace. And he begins to understand, you know, what love and grace Peter does. And it was in his failure that he discovers about love and grace. And that, and Jesus says something remarkable to him. He says, actually feed my sheep, Peter. You know what? I want you to feed my sheep. There's a purpose in all of this. I want you to go and share the good news with other people and help them to discover who God is has created them to be. And mm, yeah, help people discover who God has created them to be. Yep, didn't say that at all, did he? The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that actually uh, Peter stands up and he preaches this good news, and the Bible says that actually 3,000 people begin to discover their God potential that day. The Bible says they were salvaged, they were saved that day. So, uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people discovered their God potential that day. Really? Huh. Never saw that. And they begin to discover that there's a great God that wants to do something incredible uh, through them. It was through Peter's failure that uh, set him up for his greatest success and doing what he needed to do in life. And so whenever you... So Peter's setback was a setup for his future success. Who knew? You fail at something in life. Get back up. Don't quit. Go back to God and begin to get instruction for him. And I promise you, he'll do incredible things through your life. I failed miserably. When I was 16 or 18 years old, God was drawing me to himself. And you know what? I didn't understand who God was. I didn't understand God saw me with great, great potential. I didn't understand that God wanted to forgive me and draw out something in me of what he had created me to be. And so what I did, you know what? Forgive you for what? And where does it say that God wanted to draw something out of you for what he created? Where does it say that in the Bible? What? I, I saw a bunch of religious things happening, and I saw God as just some kind of religious icon. And so I gave Christianity the Heisman. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just kind of like, I don't want any of this. And I went my own way and did my own thing. And I failed miserably. And what happens is about 18 years later, I discover that there is a God who wants to forgive me and use me in an incredible, incredible way. Forgive you for what? You just keep, you throw the forgiveness thing in and then you move on and then use me in an incredible, incredible way. Can we talk about the forgiveness? Give me some of the details of that forgiveness thing because that's the part that's actually taught in the Bible. And I have some regrets about that failure. Because what I think about a lot of times is if I would have responded to God, you know, when I was at that, at that young age, 
then what could have happened is God may could have used me to do more and more incredible, incredible stuff. Because, you know, I've been pastoring a church now for about seven years, this church. And, um, you know, I've watched God change many people's life and help many people reach their God potential. But I think about 18, 17, 18 years of missed opportunity. But you see, I've learned something from that failure. So I don't live in the regret. What I do is I live life with an urgency. And I understand that, you know what, that I failed miserably and I missed a lot of opportunity, but I refuse to miss opportunity again. And so you see a pastor that stands on stage every single weekend, and he is very urgent about what God wants to do in your life and help you reach your God potential. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know what, I have an attitude of not delaying and putting off what, what God wants to do in my life and in your life. It's because I delayed it too long. And you see, my failure taught me to live life with an urgency. I'm here to declare to you today in an urgent manner that God wants to do something incredible in your life. Yeah, well, that's, I'm glad it's urgent, you know, but it's a false gospel. And no matter how many times you have failed, I want you to understand something, that he wants to do an incredible, incredible ministry in your life. He wants to train you up. He wants you to be a tenacious leader. Yeah, he wants you to change the world, and he's going to coach you. He wants you to do, I don't, I don't care how long you have missed and how long you have messed up. God sees you not as a mess, but as a masterpiece. Yeah, not a, no Bible verse says that. Not as a disaster, but as a dynasty. He, yeah, yeah, no verse says that. This is all just plain old narcissism. He doesn't see you as an individual. He sees you as something interwoven to do something greater than you can do by yourself. So here comes the litany of um, unsubstantiated claims apparently attributed to God. Which leads to the last principle about training tenacious uh, leaders. And I wrote it down this way. We've got to actually, we not only need to equip them, we also have to unleash them. That's what Jesus did. He unleashed these tenacious leaders. The Bible says he ascended to heaven and then he unleashed them uh, to do ministry. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse uh, 21. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am, what, sending you. Everybody say sending you. Everybody say sending me. Everybody say sending me like God is sending you to do something great with your life. He says what? Oh, wow. This is so bad. More narcissism. Sending what? Who is that? That's you. That's me. He's talking to the disciples, but he's also talking to you and me today. I want you to understand something. God wants to unleash something in you that you have never seen, you have never thought about, you have never imagined. God wants you to be a part of something greater than you can be by yourself. God wants you to be a part of something. Again, he's just basically just throwing out all these unfounded assertions. God wants you to do this, God wants to do that, and God, no Bible verse says any of this stuff. He's lying about God and using God's name to lie. And he calls his bride, his incredible uh, church, he calls it the bride of Christ, the people of God. God wants to reach down into your life, no matter what shape, what color, you know, how big, how small. He sees you'll be a part of something greater than yourself. He sees those passions. He sees those abilities. He sees those incredible, incredible things in you. And he wants to raise up a tenacious... Uh, yeah, he sees incredible things in you. Uh, what, weird, because it says we're born dead in trespasses and sins huh 
a leader, a ganacious a leader, somebody that will go out and change the world. God is raising up world changers. No matter how young they are, those aren't kids of tomorrow. Those are kids of today. And God will use them in an incredible, incredible way. You're not just a person of tomorrow. You are a person of today. And guess what? If you surrender and you begin to understand there is a God who wants to use you to do something powerful, you can keep putting it off. But the urgency is today. There may be no tomorrow. The Bible says life is like a vapor. Make a difference while you are here. Live out your God potential. Surrender your life to Him. The one. Again, yeah, none of this is the Bible. This is not repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's not the biblical gospels. You know, what are you talking about? About. This is just emptiness. Who places those incredible gifts in you and move forward and change the world. Man, I want to inspire you. I want to inspire you to change the world. Understand that no matter how many times you have screwed up, God is a God of grace. God is a God of love. God is a God that says, come to me and I will actually change your life and train you up to be a tenacious a leader. Can you bow your heads, please? God. No, we're done. Wow. Absolute litany of false doctrine, false teaching. This is not what the Bible teaches at all. That was not the biblical gospel. That was not biblical teaching. This guy has no qualifications to be a teacher in the church. None whatsoever. Unbelievable. Pray for the folks at Barefoot Church. They are not hearing the truth. They're not hearing God's word. They're not hearing the gospel. They're being fed lies and narcissistic slogans. This is not what the scripture teaches. Pray, pray, pray for them. Whoa, that was horrible. All right, well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.